Hey there, beings. You are listening to the Self-Tivity Podcast. I am your self-investing storyteller, Danny Jessen. I'm a writer, a creative entrepreneur, but most importantly, a mindfulness advocate. For those who are new to this podcast, my goal is to merge mindfulness and self-love into our self-investing journey, as well as our entrepreneur endeavors. Today, I have a special guest with me. Allow me to introduce. Are you ready? And today, I have a special guest on the show. His name is Victor Bell. He is the author of From Secrets with Men to Romance with Him. And he has wrote a book and shared his story with the world. His book is available on Amazon.com. Before I bring on Mr. Bell, I just want to read to you guys what the back of his book says. Five years old, Victor Bell's thoughts came in contact with a very taboo inclination. While watching a passionate scene on a soap opera at his babysitter's house, Victor immediately had a desire to be the woman in the scene. Yes, at five years of age, Victor developed a carnal desire to feel everything that a woman does. He even developed a desire to be a girl, and then trauma happened. To fill the void from verbal bullying and physical abuse from a member of his family, Victor's desire to attach more to what felt good grew stronger. Along the way, Victor became deeply insecure, angry, fearful, prideful, and lustful. The attributes would shape the next 18 years of Victor's life up to the point where Victor accepted being a down-low homosexual. In addition to an admin use of alcohol, marijuana, and womanizing, Victor consistently embarked on a secret nights with men. The surface life and the secret life gave Victor great joy, great satisfaction. But he would soon find out the satisfaction was only temporary. He had insatiable desire for material things. He had massive high and gripping lows, along with a growing cavity of emptiness. Victor was doing everything he could to feed the beast of his flesh. But nevertheless, his actions could never hide the mountain inadequacy that he felt very deep inside. After falling in love with a beautiful woman that truly had his best interest at heart, but yet leaning towards just coming out fully as homosexual. Victor was forced to make a decision. Was he born this way? Was a decision to be with men inevitable? Or was there something else greater than his desires that would romance him away? Ladies and gentlemen, I have Mr. Victor Bell. How are you today, Mr. Bell? I am wonderful. Thank you for having me, Danny. Um, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. From the first time we met on Clubhouse, resting in. I'm talking over you already. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I said it's, it's a blessing to be here from the first time we met on And uh, thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. I do remember when we were in Clubhouse and you came in, in our group. And I was just so thankful to have you for coming to that group because at that point it was a, a new platform for me and it was exciting to just listen to people and talk and so we started a little writing club and people would just share their stories or they would practice a monologue or they would practice something as it relates to being a writer in this group and Victor Bell came in and he shared his story and I think everyone's ears <laughs> were attached to their phone you have a very interesting story and I have a lot of questions for you, but I do want to keep this concise just so that people can really get 
the death of you, the death of why you wrote your book and why it's important for them to check it out. So I won't get into too many details on today's show, but I do have some questions that some people who are interested in reading the story may also have. All right, Arthur, Victor Bell, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you taking the time out. I just want to get started with a basic question. What inspired you to become an author? I wanted to tell my story, my love story with Jesus Christ. Uh, I wanted to share it with the world. Uh, that's the direct reason why I became an author. To share your story about your love with Jesus Christ? Yes. Okay, awesome. And so your love story is centered around, of course, you romancing with men, based on your title, and now you are in a romance with Jesus Christ. But let's yeah. go to that childhood and what sparked this initial love for men. So as I'm reading your book, um, and this is a, a disclaimer for people who have not read the book yet, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a point in the book when you are directly speaking to me, and it's because I had this thought as I was reading the book, and you mentioned that some people may think that you didn't have a healthy upbringing. And I know there was one point where you were speaking about your infatuation um, with what you saw on television um, put you in a position where you wanted to be loved like the people that you saw on the scene, particularly the woman. What was love like in your household? Um, tell us about your relationship with your mother and your father before we continue so people can have a little background about what they may or may not think about your story. Understood. I had a generally loving home, a generally really nurturing, family-orientated home. Uh, my family loved, my immediate family loved me. My extended family loved me. On both sides of my family, they're very large. Great. My grandmother had six kids. My great-grandmother on my mother's side had 12 girls. At least, all of them had at least one child, if not more. So I knew what it was to be loved generally. I felt that love was by default because I mm. felt like they were supposed to love me because of family. I wanted the love that I saw in the soap opera sex scene at five years old at my babysitter's house. I was never raped. I was never molested. Nobody ever did anything to me that I didn't want them to do. But I saw the way this woman was being held and kissed and contorting her body underneath a man's chin and holding on to him in this passionate 10-second sex, sex scene on the opening credits of a soap opera. In the preceding scene, she was drinking wine and then being swept off her feet. So I just felt that this woman is love. When it got to the sex scene, and I said, I, I like what the man is doing, but I want to be the woman because I want to be loved like her. And that's where the seed, the desire to be a woman or, or physically desire a woman and to be with men, that's where it came from. Okay, so you mentioned you wanted a love like her. And you also mentioned that your love with your family was the fault. So going back to your brain as a young child, what did you define love as? Or what I felt you... love was acts of kindness, acts of affection, and what I know affection to be now, acts of endearment, physical touch. And I saw all of those things in the midst of the sexual the sex scene that was taking place, all the, the sexual activity, I saw those things being done in the midst of sex or leading up to sex. So this is what I felt the pinnacle of love was, was if somebody can make love to you like this, then you're really loved. So the only way to be loved like that, you got to be the woman. 
Okay. Okay. I'm following. So you also are mentioning your book about the airways and its impact on you deciding that you were gay at that moment in your, or some moment in your life. I won't say which moment, um, but there was an influence, especially with what you were seeing on television, of course. And so I want to elaborate on this idea that someone could be born gay. Why do you think someone would say that they were born gay based on your experience? Because where did the thought come from? You have to like ask yourself, like, where did this thought come from? Where was the idea for him to attach himself to the desires of a woman or to want to desire a man being sexually active with him at five years old? Nobody ever raped me. Nobody ever molested me. So was it always there? Was it just activated? Was it uh, stimulated? Where and why me? So you would assume that someone could say he was born that way. I disagree for two reasons. The first reason is because they're of the sin nature versus the sexual spectrum. The sexual spectrum says you can be pansexual, bisexual, homosexual, asexual, all of those things. And scientifically, it makes sense. As a believer in Christ Jesus and the will of God, I also, I believe that there is a sin spectrum. And the sin spectrum, on the sin spectrum, because we all fall sin, sin and fall short of the glory of God, when Adam fell in the garden, there was no definition of what sin. It just was sin, the depravity of righteous, of the righteousness of God. So there's no telling what you will give yourself to, what your mind can begin to desire, what you will want that you feel, what circumstances can be presented to you, and you will go after this thing or this thought or this activity. It's no telling. No telling what emotion you will play out in your mind or play out in reality. So what I believe is that according to the sin spectrum, I fell on the spectrum of homosexuality and deep lust. And falling on that spectrum of the sin nature, there's no telling what other people can fall into because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Also, the LGBT community even says, and I can understand this, that maybe, Victor, you were never gay. You just have not, you had not discovered your sexual orientation until later in your life. You were experimenting and you were examining and experiencing what you wanted. And then you finalized what you wanted by your own, here we go, your own decision. What gave you the most completion. So there are members of the LGBT community that will that say that there's no such thing as being born gay. We have all made a choice and we have a right to our choice and society around us should leave us alone and let us live our choice freely. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the other reason why I say I understand why people would say born gay, but I don't believe it. There is a book called After the Ball. It's written by uh, Hunter Kirk and uh, Matson. If you look up Hunter Kirk and Matson, you will find this book. This book was authored by these two gentlemen who were Harvard graduates. One was a psychologist and one was a marketing major. And what they were trying to develop, they were both uh, homosexuals. They were both trying to create a narrative that presented their sexual orientation to the world, but changed the thought process of how the heterosexual looked at or how heterosexuals looked at homosexuals or how the thought process of how they viewed them. 
the uh, understanding of what it represented in our society. And they said, we cannot say that it is a choice because the faith-based communities or the faith-based sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S, will tear this apart. They will chew it up. But we must take a methodology where sympathy and empathy is produced by emotion and by sight alone, by feeling, uh, by conversation, by opinion alone. And they said the best methodology to execute this goal would to be to adopt the methodology of the Black Civil Rights Movement. This is fact. Look this up. Mm-hmm. This is not opinion. This is not something that I want to press on people. This, it's hearsay. This, is, this was their actual study and goal and plan of execution. And people all around the world are saying, I'm born gay, I'm born gay, I'm born gay, have no clue why the phrase even exists. So you're saying that the phrase I'm born gay is a part of a plan that has been executed. Yes. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yes. And it is and not, I want to say this again. This is not what I'm saying. This was uh-huh. their methodology of study that they executed. They said we must infiltrate all arenas of society. This is not what I'm saying. This is what they said. Look this up. Read the book. Um, they said we must infiltrate entertainment. We must infiltrate the education system. We must infiltrate the judicial system. We must infiltrate law enforcement. We must infiltrate church. We must infiltrate all areas of society so we can be seen as normal. And if anyone opposes us or has a difference of opinion according to our lifestyle, they will be viewed as a villain or they will be viewed as wrong or deviant to society. They have executed and been successful in their goal because today that is what society will present to you if you disagree with homosexuality. Not a disagreeing with people, not discriminating or hating people or being evil to people. That's totally different from disagreeing with homosexuality as a concept or a behavior. People being mistreated as human beings for whatever reason, and I repeat that, people being mistreated as human beings for whatever reason is wrong. For any provoked reason that you discriminate or want to hurt them or be violent or be verbally insensitive to them is wrong. But me disagreeing with you, I have a right in my human mind to disagree with you. And if you are saying that you want to take away my ability to disagree with you, you are trying to control the masses. So I just want to make sure I understand correctly. This book is written by a group of people who want to infiltrate two people. And that two people is a part of a... So they are telling the story or are they the authors of the... No, no, no. They weren't telling a story. They They were showing a plan of how to change the mind of the heterosexual in America. Okay, so they're showing the plan. So they pretty much are giving a receipt. And the plan is by... Who? Who's devising the plan? The the authors were Hunter, Kirk, and Matson. So Hunter, Kirk, and Matson, are they the ones showing what someone is saying, or are they actually the people who wanted to put out the plan? No, no, no. They they created the plan. They developed the plan. They developed the plan. Okay. And so... What is the source of these two people? Why did they, what's their ultimate goal in developing this plan? They were gay and they wanted society to see them and to see homosexuals as normal fits of society, which they should have been able to do without having to do this plan. Because in that time in society, if you were gay, if you were lesbian, 
you were considered deviant because of the, the heterosexual norm of society. So I believe their plan was obtuse because what they did with their plan was they forced everyone to now see, to agree uh, with homosexuality and or if you don't agree with homosexuality, that you're you're deviant or you're wrong or you're evil or you're vilified. Their plan was just to be for homosexuality to be normalized in society. But their methodology was that of the civil rights movement. So when anybody says anything about black people today that is negative, that is microaggressive, that is marginalizes them or is not considerate of the culture, they are vilified. They are politically incorrect. They are considered being racist a bigot or things related to that. So they just said, let's remove black people and put us in that equation. So now if anybody says anything against us or disagrees with us, they will have the same effect that a, a racist or a bigot or a related terms of that nature will be to homosexuals in the LGBT community. So these two men had this much power with just their thoughts alone to penetrate generations and generations after they published this book in order for it to become a methodology. And this is, I guess, this two regular men from my understanding, right? They're just, they're not no powerful source they, or anything like that. Uh, no, they, they, weren't, they were hard graduates. They were very smart. From a marketing standpoint, their plan was excellent. It's psychological marketing to the umpteenth power. They did a wonderful job of doing that. I mean, their plan was much like Pepsi or Coca-Cola or Nike. When you keep seeing something, when it pulls on your emotions, that's what they wanted to do. Tug on the emotions of individuals around us so that people will begin to side with us and agree with us unconsciously. And unconsciously, they will disagree with anybody that disagrees with us. Okay. Marketing. That makes sense. Marketing yeah. is very powerful. You know, we all know McDonald's because of the arch and they just penetrate as a McDonald's everywhere because marketing is very powerful. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that's one of my goal is to have mindful marketing, like because marketing is such a powerful source in the world, media, marketing, all of that. But what are we actually putting out in the media and the marketing? How are we sharing our thoughts and our concepts? Are they to lift us up or are they to put us down? Or is it some devised plan? And which is funny is for these two people just to have a plan for everyone to not be able to disagree based on your uh, summary of it is interesting because I feel like we all in one way can market our our thoughts. We can market our goals. And if we just shifted it right now, I feel like the vibration and it could be different for whoever is listening um, because we all have different perspectives in the world. But from my opinion, it looks like the world has marketed bad energy, negativity. Like it's just, it's easier for people to think. Yeah. Um, negative direction so easy that if someone is positive or upbeat it's almost like what are you why are you doing that like, you oh, go. You know, and then they, the world has created the narratives or the new definitions of what is positive and they have mm -hmm. created the new definitions of what is negative yeah you got to think about it let's just look at this from a perspective of visibility it was not positive or it was negative for to see naked bodies or really revealing bodies on television at some point in time in America. And it was positive to disagree with it. You would not be considered something wrong. You, or it was positive to agree with that. We shouldn't see half-naked bodies on television. It was something that would be a plausible. Now, if you say they're just too much nakedness over TV, you're considered not only negative, you are considered a shamer of some sort. And mm. people will come for your throat. 
That's now, interesting. Now, think about this. Whether you agree or disagree is irrelevant. They don't even care about that. They are now saying, we will cancel you. We will shut you down because you disagree. Look at that. Pay attention to this. People will, they will rip your platform from the inside out because you disagree. Mm-hmm. Now, the only time, if I can liken this to, the only thing I can liken this to is the X-Men versus human beings. Magneto wanted everybody that was not a mutant to die. And if you disagreed, you didn't have to disagree. Just because your mind was not mutant, he wanted you to die. And then you had certain human beings that if you were an X-Men or a mutant, they wanted you to die. Just like if someone said you're gay or not gay, they're so upset that they want you to die. (laughs) And I'm not saying they want you to die, but they want to kill the liberty of your mind. They want Mm -hmm. to kill the freedom of your thinking. I need to be able to infiltrate your thinking and manipulate it for you to me to say, no, no, no. What you're thinking is not the way we think. What you're thinking is wrong. It's not a part of our utopia. It's not a part of our society. I should say we can think what we want to think. And we should still be able to be fair and kind and considerate of other human beings. So but on I know that we, point, go ahead. On that point, let's sit there for a second. Because Christianity, your sources is Christ, your source is Christianity. And one of the principles is that homosexuality is frowned upon. And now, now, let's, let's be plain about it. It ain't frowned upon. It's a sin. Like every other sin. Okay, so anybody outside of Christianity, based on what we said of of liberty of the mind, if anyone outside of Christianity says that I choose to be gay, because there's also a choice, I choose to be gay, I choose to be a sinner, would, let's just take you for instance, would your standpoint, based on what you said, cause any corruption to the liberty of their mindset? Absolutely not, because they have a free choice. See, that's the problem. People feel that because what I believe, my faith, what I believe is absolute truth. Now, when I say absolute truth, I believe that my truth of my faith is the truth and there's that's the only truth. But there are others that think I'm crazy. They think I'm brainwashed. They think I'm worshiping a white man's God. They think I'm worshiping this invisible sky God. And that's fine. That's what they believe. But what I'm saying is my belief has nothing to do with your belief as long as I don't force it on you, as long as I don't insult you, as long as I don't hit you, rape, maim, pillage you, uh, take from you, steal from you. If I'm not doing that, then my belief has nothing to do with you. Yeah, it has nothing to do with you. That's why I wrote my book, because it's it's my love story. It's my story of compassion and mercy and forgiving and forgiveness. It's my story of romance from uh, the depths of insecurity and fear and anger and inadequacy. It's my story. So if you disagree with it, you ain't got to buy it. You ain't got to look at it. You ain't got to uh, subscribe to anything that's of me. But yeah. this is my story. Yeah. And see, the problem is the LGBT community says we want to force our way everywhere and we want you to agree with us. If you don't, we have a problem with you. And it should be fair, right? It should be fair. Thank you. I- you should be able to have your faith in God and believe in your story that this is your truth. And the LGBT community, I'm not sure of all of the acronyms, um, but another mindset or another concept should also be able to believe in their truth. I think the issue becomes an issue when everyone is trying to force everyone else to be what their truth is. And that's again, taking away, like you said, that liberty, 
Because the bottom line is to not take it personal and to establish your own truth and live your life. But when we try to swim our way into other people's lives and force their way of thinking onto, I can't force my way of thinking onto your way of thinking. It's just a conversation, right? We probably have different perspectives on a lot of things, but to respect each other and to respect each other's truth in each other's world is where we kind of have some peace. I think people disrupt their own peace when they're trying to make other people become what they want them to become. Because again, if you don't want anyone to distract you from being who you are, then you can't force it on anyone else. But it's only it's a, only by subscription. It's only by choice that people ask me or want to know my story. I am yeah. a former download homosexual. And as my story continues, what we were talking about earlier, I wanted to be the woman. Nothing happened. Nobody raped me. Nobody molested me. Nobody took anything from me. I wanted to be the woman because I felt love if I was the woman. You know, I, on uh, that in your book, you said that you wanted to be better than the woman and females that you grew up with. Yes, because I felt felt the way girls were treated growing up was unfair. I felt girls were, if a girl falls, if a girl cries, if a girl has a bad day, are you okay, sweetie? D- don't cry. Come here. It's going to be all right. Dry your tears. It's so sweet and endearing and, and kind and overtly compassionate. With boys, stop crying. Stop, stop whining. Pick your chin up. Be a man. Be tough. Put your hands up. Body shots. Arm shots. Punch to your arm. All the rest of that. And it's conditioned. Majority mm-hmm. by men. The understanding of men is what men think. We pass it on to men, to boys. Races are passed it on to boys. But women think the same about boys. And this is, our society says that. So in my mind, I said, I want to receive this love, receive this compassion, receive this affection, receive this romance, and be a better steward of it. Mm. And I felt that I could because I'm a man and I know how men think. So growing up, and then I, if I'm a boy to a teenager and I'm saying girls getting gifts now, girls getting money now, girls do stand in the girls' lockers and sell them all these sweet nothings. I said, man, what, what person wouldn't want that? Yeah. What, let's just be plain. Let's just use human understanding. What person wouldn't want unprovoked, unconditional affection, kindness, endearment, physical touch, words of affirmation? quality type, all of those particular things. What person wouldn't want that? And then what person, when you have felt sex at the height of sensation, what person wouldn't want to feel all of those things I just said with great sex? That's a really interesting concept that you laid out. And I remember reading that in your book. And I was just like, you know what? It makes me think about even what I experience or what I observe with children is that the group of boys, they feel some type of way when they're getting beat up on by their uncles. And that is when they're young. So like when you were watching TV, the thoughts that came into your mind when you're young, they form and they create something bigger over time. And it's just how do parents navigate through that? They don't, this is your story. So you're telling this from your perspective and this is how it was um, impacted on you is through the, the TV and then watching girls be treated better than boys. So I wonder where is that balance? Because then if you start to treat boys with love and care and given the nurture of the mother, it's like, oh, you're too soft. And if you're too soft, then they're going to end up like a girl. So do you feel like you have an answer for what would create balance for a young child or how parents or uncles or big brothers should interact with young boys in order for them to feel like it's okay to be a boy. It's okay to have strength. And it's not the fact that you're never going to get kisses or warmth or you just have to be strong all the time. Because I feel like that has an impact on 
the mental well-being of a lot of Black men is that they have to be so strong. They can't have emotions. And therefore, they're they're acting out. They're actually, they might act out in different ways. One way of acting out, and this is just a theory. I'm not talking any fact. One way of acting out could be that I'm just going to be a woman since they have it all. Another way of acting out is just, I'm just going to turn to alcohol and drugs and um, abuse it to the point where I'm numb what from the saying, I, Forgive me for interjecting. Oh. What you're saying are several ways that I believe that men act out. Because mm-hmm. the first way men can do that is just be there. Be there. And when you're there and you're actively there, you're actively in their life. You're actively showing masculine affection. You're actively showing them how to navigate their emotions. You're actively showing them how to being cared for is not soft or it's not weak or it's not, you're not a punk. You're actively showing them how to communicate and express their emotions and express how they feel. When you're actively doing that, but the problem is so many men don't know how to do that because they weren't told it was okay to do that. Our generation, I'm 34, has made therapy a thing that is congratulated, is encouraged. The generation before us, what? Therapy. Particularly the black community, we need, all you need is Jesus. Just go pray. Mm-hmm. Nobody was big on therapy. So you don't have a lot of the training and development and just the demonstration of seeing that. And uh, hypermasculinity is a thing. Mm-hmm. Hypermasculinity is a thing. Um, uh, by the time I was, from the ages of five to just before eight, I had several sexual encounters with boys my age. Like I said, nobody forced me, nobody molested me, nobody made me do anything I didn't want to do. But by the time I was nine, I lost my virginity to a girl. And what I saw that provoked this, what I saw porn for the first time. Um, the friend of mine that showed me the porn was nine. I was nine. We were both in the fourth grade. We were friends in the neighborhood. And growing up in that time, from about eight, seven, eight, nine, you start to see that the men that are the womanizers are congratulated. They are marketed. They're advertised. They are celebrated. And it just clicked when I saw the porn because I was like, well, I really want to be the woman now, but I also want to be the guy too. Mm-hmm. Because I saw a different response sexually and verbally and physically that I had never saw. But I had, I felt it was it came from the proceeding of things like Walking down the beach, being swept off your feet, eating a romantic dinner, and then having this mind-blowing sex. But my mind also said, I want to be the man, too, because I want to do this to girls. Mm -hmm. So you find a way to be what is presented before you and what's around you, regardless of what type of house you grew up in. It's what you see around you. Yeah. And that took me down a deeper road of lust. It took me down a deeper road of, of sexual desire. All still wanting to be the woman. So media seems like it's the heart of it all because you go back, you mentioned that there is, it's not taught in a household um, of how to be masculine and things like that. And if you go back to it. I'm sorry, I could cut you off. I wouldn't say it's not taught. It's not taught how to be masculine, how to be masculine and be in touch with your emotion, how to express how you feel in so many households as a boy. And, And to that point, if we go back to even maybe the root of slavery and slavery, there was that's where a lot of it may have stemmed from because the slave owners used to abuse men, black men in front of their black women. They and did. They abused them. They, they raped them. 
And so when you have that as your source and then you're moving out of that, it's like, well, how do I start to lead a household? Now I might be overpowering what it means to be a man because for so long I was stripped of my manhood and couldn't do anything about it. And I was stripped of my manhood right in front of my family and my woman. And I wonder if that energy or that spirit is kind of um, pervasive and we need to break that curse somehow is that we're just all out of order. There's no balance. And the solution is what? How do people find a solution? Some people find a solution in religion. Uh, Some people find a solution in something else. I don't know how people find a solution, but they just try to make it or fake it until they make it. And I feel like we're all kind of just wandering out here trying to do what's right, be the best way. And then we're arguing about those same concepts, but nobody really knows what really makes us get to a solution. What really is the answer? Everyone believes that they have an answer, but still, we still find ourselves in these battles. So Um, I really, let's get to the the climax of my story. So the most satisfying things on this earth are food Mm -hmm. and sex. So the Bible says if you can fasting, this type of power comes from prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. And it's if a man can abstain um, and control his tongue, he is uh, in tongue meaning saying whatever you want to say. Um, The tongue gives you so much satisfaction and sensation. But if you can control what you want to say, control your body, control your flesh, that you are like a perfect man. Keyword like a perfect man. Not saying you're perfect, but you're like a perfect man, complete man. So. At the height of my life, uh, or the height of my, the sexual peak of my life, I was totally given to sensations of being with several men at a time, of several women at a time. Um, I used to attend all-male orgies. I used to attend um, heterosexual swinger parties. Um, I used to, mixing brown and white liquor was how I drank. Throwing large parties. I used to throw large college parties uh, where I could pack out the club to full capacity, grossing anywhere from just under, up to $10,000 a night. All of that was sensational. But I was left feeling empty on a many a night, mm-hmm. thinking that this stuff would fulfill me. And the adversary kept saying to me, those of you that don't know what it is, if you're not a this the devil, Satan, the spirit of wickedness kept saying, just come out as gay. Just come out as completely homosexual. And mm-hmm. that gave me peace to think about that. I had gotten to the point where I started feeling empty and I was just really ready to come out as completely gay. I did not plan on falling in love with Jesus. I didn't plan on giving my life to be completely submitted to Christ Jesus. Um, That was not a goal of mine. Uh, My mother made me go to church a night after a big New Year's Eve party that my girlfriend and I threw at the time. She was my girlfriend at the time. It's my wife today. I go to church. The bishop calls me to the front altar. He calls me by name. It's not really something I was looking to do. And then he says, go sin no more. That kind of bothered me, but I really wasn't thinking about it too much till it kept ringing in my head. And then I get downstairs to my room and I hear, go sin no more, go sin no more, go sin no more. And I was upset. I yelled, that means no, that, that means I can't be gay no more. And I knew it was the presence of the Lord, but I was not reverencing him as the Lord of Lords. And I was yelling and screaming and crying, but my yelling and screaming and crying, if you could translate it in a language, it was saying, let me be gay. Let me be gay. Let me be gay. And I did not not be gay. It was my identity. Mm. It gave me fulfillment. It gave me confidence to be with men. So something had to conquer my mind. That's what I'm saying. All the things I told you I was doing and I was giving to, something had to change my thoughts. Something had to look at me and say, what if I give you this, 
see how it feels. And that's what happened. So when I said, I'm ugly, I'm insecure, I'm fearful, I'm doubtful, I'm afraid, I'm not confident. You don't know what it's like to be me. That's what I screamed. You, you screamed at, at the church or? Screamed, I was on my knees in my room. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. The event of my salvation, it was not a stereotypical being at an altar in a church. Uh-uh. I was in my room on my knees. Mm-hmm. And then the spirit of the Lord said, I was beaten. I was publicly ridiculed. I was publicly defamed. I was publicly betrayed. I was tortured. Then I was murdered because I love you. I was shocked. I heard that in my ears audibly. So, okay, wait, wait. You heard the statement in your ears. Was it, did the voice sound like you? Did it sound like a different voice than yours? It sounds like very, because it's your, it's your ears. It's your spirit. But it was a voice that was very distinct. It's how I heard it. Like it could sound, it's my, the hearing of my vessel of my flesh and my spirit. But I heard it very distinct. I heard it over my crying. I heard it over my anger. I heard it over my frustration. It pierced through that. And it pierced through my heart and my soul. And it got my attention to where the tears on my face just stopped. Mm-hmm. And after I, my tears stopped, it said, give me homosexuality. Give me fornication. Give me drinking. Give me smoke. Give me cursing. Give me everything. And I'm going to give you my love. And you see how it feels. I was presented with a choice. And what I felt when I submitted my will to this presence, to this voice, I felt a love that I can't explain and describe to this day. Mm. I cannot define it. It is a greater sensation than anything I've ever, ever experienced or ever heard of or has ever come in contact with my mind. I've never experienced that before. Mm. I'm on a Jesus high. I'm on a Yeshua high. I'm never coming down. So if somebody says, well, I'm struggling with homosexuality. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with finding my identity. I can share my story with them on how I found an identity that completed my confidence and the fulfillment of my identity to where I am at peace with who I am. Yeah. And if they decide to want to experience it through the methodology that I did, hallelujah, Jesus. If they don't want to, that's fine too. Still, hallelujah, Jesus. Because no matter what, I can't force that on them. I can only present it to them if they want to know. Or if they're reading or looking me up and they're intrigued by it, then they can find out more about it and see God for themselves. But I cannot make anybody want to do that. This is my life of secrets with men to romance with him. Yeah. So, so the romance part, let's go back just a little bit when you say you met your wife there. Because as a woman, mm-hmm. I don't know what my experience would be like if I took this scenario and I put it on a scenario map. How would I feel being with someone who's been with men most of their lives? I don't know what position I would be in. And I think it would take someone who has a faith base, someone who's very confident in herself, and someone who's very loving um, to be able to take that on. Can you... Share with us a little bit about your wife and y'all's story. Like, what was it like when you told told her that you used to be with men? How did she respond to that? When I told her at first, she laughed. And she was like, boy, you crazy. You silly. Joking. Mm Kind of expounded on it. And she was like, boy, you Vic. Football player, muscular, ladies man, Vic. Now, I don't believe it. And then I I got a little more graphic. And she said, you're not lying because any man the man in today's society would not make up the story. Yep. And when I got through telling the story, finished with the life. I said, yes. She said, Are you? I said, I'm in love with Jesus and I'm in love with you. And she said, okay, let's just move on. Wow, just like that. And, yeah. Uh, Ten years later, we're still married. She's actually preparing dinner right now. 
Okay, you gotta get to the same. So we're gonna wrap up really fast. So yeah. is it ever any moments of insecurities of or you just have her solid? She doesn't ever think like, oh, he might be out there with men right now. Like Nope, she never has. And I've never given her a reason. To, I've never given her a reason to think it with women either. You gotta think I I was still a womanizer on the surface. I still slept with a lot of women too. Yeah, so that's another part of it. You could be with men or women, so now the pool is, is open to a large amount of possibilities. Yeah. So there got to be a lot of security in your marriage. So big ups. I don't know if big ups is a thing, but props to being able to have such a powerful um, connection and relationship um, because I don't know if a lot of people can handle that on the surface, but it definitely um, tells the tale. What it, say it again. That's unconditional love. Unconditional love. That's it. And a lot of people are serving conditional love and they think that they love are loving unconditional, but unconditional love is something like that for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful that because now going back full circle, when I said, what did that little boy think love is? Now this is really a definition of love being personified, especially, you know, the love of God um, within your rooms, I would just assume is now being personified with the love of your wife and your children. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. So just a few more questions. I know you have to go, so I'll, I'll just wrap it up. There were so many questions that I have and the conversation went so a different way. So I just encourage people to read the book um, and then maybe you can come back on um, if anyone had any other questions and they sent me some emails and they wanted to, you know, get to that part. Um, because I feel like the story is really interesting and I want to share that when I was reading your story, you definitely shifted my perspective on just how religion and people who are religious or in a Christian faith may respond to homosexuality because you see different narratives. Like there are narratives where they really bash the community and then there's other sins that they're not bashing, right? It's really hardcore. Like, you know, you got to hate homosexuality, but they're not looking at the source of it, why it may be happening. And they're not really bringing the love of God. So if you have the love of God or Christianity, from my assumption, it is about being the truth. It's not really about bashing the truth on people. Come on, woman of God. Yes. Be the truth. Be it. Be it. And people just automatically relate to it. They will be drawn to you because you are actually the truth. You're living. Yes, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Forgive me. Yeah, but if you're the living truth, then you don't have to, because I've been in organizations before where it's just like, you go out and teach the truth, or you go out and teach the word, and it's almost like you're fighting with these people. But if you really get the concept, if you, who wants to be in any organization or any relationship where you was forced into it, or you was even made fun of because you're not in it, or you belittled to be in it? Like, I don't see how that's the way that you bait me in. You would bait me in by actually being with the kids saying, well, keep it at 100 of <laughs> your truth. Like, sure. you got to come and say, you got, you can't be a homosexual. You can't do this. You can't do that. You are Satan's child. Then I'm like, okay, then I'll just be Satan's child over here. Like, I don't see how people think that fear, the fear is the thing that brings people to their truth or their faith, their religion, their concept. I don't see how fear is supposed to bring you in. I think love. But then based on Christianity, there is the fear of God. So there's that concept. So they kind of put that on you too. Like you've got to fear God. And so maybe that's why. It's a different fear though. People fear like it's frightened. No, it's not that. It's reverence. Mm-hmm. Your children reverence you. I reverence my parents. Yeah. My reverence me. It's a reverence of respect and honor. My, I honor my wife, so there are certain things that I'm going to do to show that. Mm-hmm. And honor God 
and you honor his son that has died, that we might have eternal life. We might be reconciled back to the creator. You honor him by being his word. You honor him by being the light. Like you said, you honor him by being the truth. And you have a lot of people that have misinterpretation or just in error of explaining the scriptures and explaining it as a demonstration of their life. And they drive a lot of people away. But the scripture says, if I, Jesus Christ, if I be lifted up, mm-hmm. if the understanding of Christ Jesus be lifted up, he'll draw all men unto him. Earlier, um, you said that there are people who are not going to like your book and they don't got to read it. Yep. Tell us, who is your audience? If you were... And we can actually go right into the selectivity game that I had as in the selectivity statement. So who is your audience? That's going to be the prerequisite for the selectivity game I have for you. Who is your audience? If you were to say, this is the people that I'm speaking to and relationship to the book that I wrote from Secrets with Men to Romance with Him, who would you be talking to? Who is the audience that you would be speaking to? Anybody. Anybody. So anybody, this book is for anybody. Okay. The thing about marketing, though, is that, like you said before, this book might not be for you. This book is not for you if it's not for you. So in order to be a marketing genius, you have to understand that to market to everyone is a failed attempt because everything is not for everybody. To narrow down your audience, who would you put, what group, how would you define the characteristics of the group that you would market your book to? If I'm a marketing major, so I know there is an audience. I have a target audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so the target audience? Yeah. Um, the reason why I say anybody and everybody, because it's a love story. Mm-hmm. Love, love stories. If you love stories of triumph, if you love stories of redemption, if you love stories of, if you love novels uh, that are, that dive into people's lives where you can see the great transparency, an audience that appeals to those types of books and those types of, that type of literature is my audience. I have other forms of my testimony out Mm -hmm. um, and it will appeal to a more specific audience, but this book is for anybody. Okay. Because I can't read it and who wouldn't read it. And I can there are people that you would think wouldn't read it and they want to read it. I just showed this book the other day to a middle-aged white man, a police officer, and he read the back of it and he said, wow, this is captivating." <laughs> I mean, honestly, your book is one of those books where it's like, people are like, I wonder how that story ended. When we met you in Clubhouse, we would, I think we were still talking. You had left the room and we were just like, I wonder this. I wonder that. Like, because it's one of those stories. And I've heard a few stories like this lately. I'm just coming across these stories where it's the opposite. Like people who have started one way and they really thought that that was the life that they wanted. And then they did a whole, I'm about to say 360, it's not 180 to something different. And I think that's what's captivating about the stories because you're going to too extreme. Like, especially in this world, you got people who are like, I'm riding to be gay. And people are like, I'm riding to be Christian. And you know, that's like, they make well, there's Christian gays and whatever, but on the large scale of things, they would be in different rooms. So this is my selectivity game before we go into the selectivity statement. So you said that your market is for everyone. So now I'm giving you 15 seconds and you and I'll give you like five or eight seconds to think about it to put together a little jingle that you would use as your commercial for your book. You're familiar with jingles, right? Like Yeah, yeah, yes. I heard you humming earlier before we started the show. I was like, well, maybe he want to do a little singing. <laughs> so I will give you eight little seconds on the clock. And then after that, you're going to do a little jingle that promotes your book. So I wonder what phrase or what words you're going to put together to promote your commercial for the book. Uh, I, uh, let's... All right. Eight, seven, eight. 
<laughs> I know she's like, what in the world this girl got to be doing? <laughs> all right, you ready? Your jingle time. It's all uh, the time you hit. Let's go. From secrets. From secrets with men to romance with him. Read me. From secrets to men to romance with him. We which was that last part? I said, read me. Oh, read me. Okay, there you go, everybody. That's our self-tivity <laughs> game that we have. And now we're going to go into our self-tivity statement. And I shared this with you earlier. I'm just going to share it again with the audience. A self-tivity statement is a type of self-tivity. A self-tivity is any intentional activity to invest in your health, your being, in your mind, anything to help you become a better person. And that can be defined by you. Uh, self-tivity statement is one of the self-tivities I created, which is very similar to an affirmation. But it's not just any affirmation. It's an affirmation coupled with an intentional action that supports that affirmation today. So, Mr. Victor Bell, author of From Secrets of Men to Romance with Him, what is your self-tivity statement? I will be sovereign. And how do you support that affirmation? By isolating and separating my thoughts from anything that can, that tries to control me or hinder me from my purpose. Okay, I like it. Come through. Well, thank you so much for your time here. I really, this conversation was really, really interesting. And I didn't know it was going to go this way, but I think a lot, a lot came out of it. So I really am thankful for you sharing yourself, sharing your story. There was a lot of message within you. And I'm actually surprised because I didn't know that you thought the way that you did. So I really learned about um, who you are. I kind of had a generic understanding. Um, but there is some depth to who you are and how you present yourself. And it's not just like, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. And I appreciate that. I um, appreciate you being open-minded and coming on the show. I'm going to give you this opportunity to close out, to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your book. And if you want to, you can go ahead and talk about um, your brand. Um, so here's sure. the You can find my book on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Once again, it's called From Secrets with Men to Romance with Him. Um, you can also purchase it. Apple products are sold as a Kindle. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Love and Sword. That's F A N D S W O R D. Love and Sword. Uh, you can reach out to me on Facebook at Victor Edward. You can reach out to me on Club Victor Edward at Yeshua Overlust. Um, my story is also featured on the 700 Club. Um, no more illusions of love, or I think it's no more illusions of love, but in Victor Bell uh, 700 Club, you can find it on YouTube. Thank you all. Thank you, Danny, for letting me uh, be a guest on your show. And I thank you all for this. watching. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you everyone for watching. I hope that you were able to sit through here and gain some perspective. And I believe that we all have our opinions. We all have different narratives, different stories, but it's always important for us to listen to one another and gain some insight to what another world is experiencing and to share where we all communicate, where we all align so that we can become a better people all together. Until next time, hold on to you as much as you can. Hold on to your health, your being, and your mind. Be mindful.